Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we speak with British Vogue's editor-in-chief Edward Enningful on his new memoir. I always say my mother made me who I am today. Very young age, I'd watch her sewing. I'd watch her make all these incredible clothes, all these incredible women come in, all different shapes and sizes. My idea of beauty came from my mother. Anybody could be beautiful. Plus, Michael Binion on the diplomatic significance of Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. The details have been very, very carefully thought through and rehearsed, and everything will be, I think, absolutely perfect. It will be like clockwork, and it will be a very impressive and solemn occasion. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show discussing the diplomatic significance of Queen Elizabeth II's funeral, and no one better to tell us than our Monaco 24's regular, Michael Binion. I think it will surprise and impress everybody. Yes, as you say, the uh, details have been very, very carefully thought through and rehearsed, and everything will be, I think, absolutely uh, perfect. It will be like clockwork, and it will be a very uh, impressive and solemn occasion. I remember the last state funeral. I remember watching Churchill's state funeral mm. uh, when I was at university, and uh, that was very impressive, and it was moving, as I think this one will be. Uh, that was, of course, a state funeral for a commoner, which is a, a relatively rare thing. It's 70 years since the last funeral for a head of state, that being, of course, uh, George VI. Do you anticipate that it will be, in significant respects, any different from that? Or is this one of those things where part of the point of the monarchy is that nothing much really changes for the big occasions? Well, I think it will be different in that it will be slightly more inclusive. Um, mm. Don't forget, 1952, a very different uh, population of Britain, different people. Uh, it w that one was probably much more stratified. In other words, it was uh, more the sort of upper classes were in evidence. This will be, uh, how can I put it, a people's funeral in a way. Uh, it means that uh, you will have the streets lined with people of all races, nationalities, colours, backgrounds, uh, as is the... Uh, population in Britain today. Mm. And that's as the Queen would have liked it. And it will be in many ways more inclusive in that representatives of all the various charities and organisations that she supported or visited will all be there in attendance. Um, we should talk a bit about the uh, the guest list at the funeral. Um, this, again, will have been meticulously planned for many, many years. But nevertheless, things change in the world. How much angst do you think there is going to be over the seating arrangements? Well, I think that's not too difficult. Obviously, the President of the United States will have pride of place, mm -hmm. and so will the heads of government uh, or presidents from our European neighbours and from the Commonwealth. I mean, those are the priorities. Then come the other countries, uh, and yes, who sits next to whom? You know, whether India ranks above Canada or below <laughs> Australia, or you know, it's difficult to say. I mean, luckily, the, the pews are fairly wide, so you can have them all sitting <laughs> in the same row. Uh, and then, of course, there's the difficulty for the those countries where uh, they feel they have to send somebody, but they don't actually have very good relations with mm. Britain. So they will be probably somewhere towards the back. 
But what do, what do you do with somebody like, you know, the most obvious example of that you have just described, President Xi Jinping of China. Uh, it's not confirmed whether or not he is coming. China will obviously, you would think, send somebody. But if if, pre- if the president of China does turn up, what, what do you do about that? Because you, you can't stick him up the back with the King of Tonga. No, you can't. He has to be right up at the front. I mean, it would be a terrible affront otherwise. Mm. I mean, he has to be treated with the respect of the size of his country and, and what his country deserves, even though relations are pretty frosty at the moment. I mean, luckily, there's no indication that President Putin is going to come. Uh, he has, in fact, ruled himself out, but I think that's... Uh, yes. I, 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 don't, I doubt an invitation was on its way, to be I honest. don't think so. I mean, there will obviously be somebody representing the Russian Federation, uh, probably maybe even just the ambassador or somebody like that. I mean, mm. uh, they did, after all, send a formal message of condolence, which is, uh, I mean, would have been a dreadful insult. We're not at war with Russia, so uh, that was expected. How valuable, potentially, though, is any state funeral as a diplomatic event? One, one reads accounts of these things uh, down the ages, and they, they do actually sound mildly riotous, because everybody sees this as an opportunity to have informal, off-the-record conversations. There is um, a very funny stretch in the late Paddy Ashdown's diaries when he talks about King Hussein's funeral um, in Amman, which, of course, was an enormous circus, and I think he, he basically ends up having conversations in broom cupboards uh, with people who, <laughs> who wish to pass on messages. <laughs> yes, it's going to be a bit like that. Um, there will be, as you say, people from every country meeting, and they'll all possibly hope to prolong their stay by a few hours so they can get a word in here and there. I think the fact, though, that they will all come with particular respect for the monarch, for Queen Elizabeth herself, means that the diplomatic side will take something of a, a sort of secondary status. Uh, if it's somebody that they a funeral they all go to where they didn't particularly care for the person, I'm thinking, for example, um, uh, President Chernyenko of mm. uh, Russia, who <laughs> was only a year in office and came just before Gorbachev, mm. where everybody turned up because they had to, and mostly they spent the time in diplomatic talks with each other. That's um, <laughs> when uh, they were sort of speculating about whether the young Gorbachev would succeed. Uh, that's when that sort of thing matters. But I think they will all be much more focused this time on the actual event uh, of pain paying homage to the Queen. Um, we'll, we'll finish for the moment, Michael, by uh, doing the thing everybody else has been doing over the last few days, is of speculating vaguely about what kind of King Charles III intends to be. Y- you have the minor advantage here of having met him uh, on at least two occasions. And I, I, I don't know in what detail you discussed his plans when the time comes, but what, what, <laughs> what, what sense do you have of, of what kind of monarch he intends to be? Well, he's a very engaged person. He has many, many causes that interest him. Uh, I happened to uh, meet him on two different causes. Uh, One, I went to dinner with him when he gave a reception for the Mary Rose, the Mm. ship that was raised from the deep in Portsmouth, uh, outside Portsmouth, uh, of which he was very interested. And I happened to chat to him. We happened to be talking about Islam, which was one of his other great interests. He's been a great admirer of Islamic culture and that kind Mm. of thing. And he is engaged uh, and interested and listens and seems to, you know, be wholly focused on what uh, what he's talking about. And the other time I met him was at a interfaith service uh, in a little church in Britain, in London that is a centre for reconciliation and peace. And uh, they opened a, a tent, which is a sort of interfaith gathering. It seems very odd. It was a genuine Bedouin tent at the back of this church. And he came there together with the archbishops and various interfaith leaders of different faiths. And uh, since I was a trustee there, I was also meeting him and talking to him. And again, he's involved. He cares about faith. He's very involved in it. He's actually sponsors a 
an art school that does holy art. You know, it paints icons, it learns Islamic art, it does all those sort of things. So the range of his interests is enormous, and most of them are things that are really important now for young people today, the environment, climate change, all that sort of thing. So actually, he's he's sort of ahead of his time instead of being uh, a stuffy fellow, as, as the image would, would once have him. Well, just a final quick thought on that. I mean, it's not an original observation where his mother is concerned that she was very able at walking that balance between being incredibly famous and yet ultimately unknowable. We really don't know very much of what she actually thought about anything. Um, King Charles III, as he now is, and I still keep tripping over that, uh, has not been shy necessarily in making his feelings known on various issues, either in public or in his his infamous letters to ministers. Now that he actually is king, is he going to feel or be, or should he be, in fact, more constrained on that front? A bit more constrained, especially on day-to-day British politics. I mean, mm. that's the one area where he hasn't actually stepped in. But on global issues such as climate change and such as, uh, you know, sustainable agriculture and all those sort of things, I think he'll be as outspoken as he always has been. I mean, he will make speeches, probably not campaigning speeches, but he will be present at some of the big events and give his blessing to them. And so he should. And it's no good suddenly saying, well, of course, he now has no opinions. We know many of his opinions. People may not agree with what he thinks about architecture. He may be a little bit more muted on that. But I think he's still going to take an interest. And so he should. I mean, we don't want a replica of his mother. We want a different monarch. And still on The Queen, this week we invited film critic and Monaco regular Karen Krizanovich on the popular culture portrayals of The Queen. From the cool reserve of Helen Mirren to the rather surreal cartoon voiceover of Jennifer Saunders, some of the world's biggest actors have done their best to portray the Queen on screen. Let's find out more from Karen. Pretty much it started in the 1980s, but there is a Jeanette Charles is the is the uh, actor that generally plays the Queen in all of these naked gun things. Well, and she's done a lot of that. So it was going to take us a little while, I thought, to get to naked okay, gun, but we're going that. straight sorry, in with I'm naked sorry. gun because it was, you know, doing the research last night. You think here's the Queen, and then mm. there's you know, blah, 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 and, and all these really really serious things. And straight away you give us Jeanette Charles. Well, Thanks, Karen. I just I just wanted to say that Jeanette Charles has played the Queen because the Queen doesn't normally play herself. You know, she's got other things to do, but there were notably and notably a few times when when she did play herself, and that's only recently. But uh, yes, yeah, you're right. It kind of started in the '80s, and she's always been a popular, very iconic figure. And even if she's played badly, which Jeanette Charles didn't do, um, you know who it is. There was something about the Queen, wasn't there, that you could play her, you could have a very good go at trying to sort of be her, although, you know, we ne- we will never know. This is a woman who made an entire life out of not talking about who she was as a person. That was what made her arguably so brilliant. Mm. The silence was the great power that she had. But there was this ability... You know, just looking at the naked gun, and even you know, when you look at things like was it Minions that that Jennifer um, Jennifer Saunders was the um, was the Queen, that we could mock and play with the image of the Queen in an, in a way that dare I say it, we might not be able to with Charles. Yeah, well, she's because she was a fixture. She was always there, and she was a known quantity. But also, she was sacred and untouchable to a certain extent. So that means that she was ripe for being put in satirical situations. And what we expected her to say would be great, but what we what we didn't expect her to say was also surprise. So she was a real writer's um, festival, I would say. Anybody that needed to write a piece for 
the queen, um, had full reign and could have the power, as you said, of her silence. So it was the early, it was, you know, it was sort of like the early to mid um, 20th century that the world relaxed the rules, or that the, I think it was the Lord Chamberlain's office um, relaxed the rules about portraying living monarchs on screen. Arguably, one of the the, the first most serious um, attempts to to portray her was Helen Mirren in The Queen in 2006, which is the story of the immediate aftermath of Princess Diana's death. So this is a deeply serious moment. Very much, very much. It's Stephen Frears' drama, written by uh, Peter Morgan, who also went on to write The Crown, showrunner for The Crown. This is, a, it's, pithy dra- it's pithy drama, pithy dialogue, with a lot of emotional insight. And Helen Mirren, even though it didn't really look, doesn't really look like the Queen at all, um, portrayed her perfectly. And then we have The Crown, which has paused filming out of respect. Yes. But this is when we really sort of like rummaged around the cupboards, wasn't it? <laughs> well, we did, but but never and if you watched it, it, it's it never overstepped. It always stepped back a bit and left you wondering about the queen and always just showing showing one side of her pretty much. I didn't feel it was really well-rounded, still kept the mystique. Finally, she becomes her own star in 2012. <laughs> and then earlier on this year with Paddington, which I think has like tugged at the heartstrings. It was astonishing to see how many Paddingtons had been laying under trees yeah. in tribute to her. Yeah. It was It's writer of that famous sketch with, with Helen Mirren, Mir- with the Queen herself and Paddington. The writer said it was her farewell. It was her saying, I can have a happy death. Yeah. Yeah, well, she she also, don't forget, she was acting to space. I mean, Paddington wasn't there. She was just acting to empty space, and she did it did it absolutely beautifully, and it was nice to, say, to see her be able to relax and show us the side that she wasn't able to show us for decades. And this was obviously her parting shot, which arguably made the greatest emotional connection, more than any rendition by anybody who's played her in The Crown or, 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 or Helen Mirren can ever do. Well, if, if, we, if we know the Queen for one thing, it's timing. And, um, you know, she'll be remembered for Paddington. Of course, I'll remember her best for jumping out of the helicopter at the Olympics in 2012. You are listening to The Curator. And here is our weekly segment, What We Learned, where Andrew Muller tells us what we might have missed this week. We learned this week that there are weeks when this taking a wry sidelong look at the news racket really is a bit of a high wire act without, if you'll indulge us, any sort of net protecting us should we topple from the thrashing shark tank of outraged public opinion. Such are the risks we run for your entertainment. We learned, or really concluded, when we contemplated our options that we had to pick one from two. The first, which certainly seemed the easiest, was to direct the ensuing few minutes of satirical jocularity away from the obvious and instead make fun of stuff which had no bearing on or relationship to the obvious. We swiftly learned, however, that this was more difficult than it first appeared, as the obvious appeared to be one of those rare news stories so huge that it caused something of an instant drought of other news, because everybody who, in any other week, would have been perpetrating any amount of nonsense, daftness and folly was inside watching the obvious on television. 
But it's a tricky business. Morbidly attentive listeners to these weekly monologues will have noticed that last week's did not appear in its regular time slot. A shame, as it really was one of the funniest we'd ever assembled. Indeed, very arguably the funniest six or seven minutes of radio ever recorded in all of human history, and now you'll never know. While it contained nothing obviously subversive or tasteless, not any more than usually anyway, running it in the circumstances just seemed sort of off. For some reason, let's have the chorus of general muttered agreement. The way forward this week, we eventually decided, was to take a series of swings at the fact that nobody else really quite seems to know how to respond either. This, we reckoned, might bring to bear some wintry and fundamentally inclusive humour upon a period of widespread sorrow, mourning and general discombobulation, and, this is obviously by far the more significant consideration, ease us under the radar of those seething witchfinders invigilating against those failing to properly do whatever it is we're all supposed to be doing. And yes, that other chorus is probably overdue at this point. Just get on with it. So we learned this week that the generally preferred method of showing respect seems to be not doing whatever it is you usually purport to do. And yes, we did have a bit of a think about following this example ourselves, but were concerned that our employers would then have shown their respect by not paying us. Anyway, in not a few cases, if we're honest, and why would we lie, we learned that the connections between the downing of tools and the showing of respect often verged on the outright tenuous. We learned, for example, that Heathrow Airport proposed to show its respect for the late Queen Elizabeth II by cancelling a number of flights, an announcement which will have prompted a great many recent would-be passengers to ponder what else Heathrow has been respecting pretty much all this year. Righto, up and running. Reckon we'll get away with this. We learned that other similarly motivated closures and postponements covered the spectrum from the obtuse to the downright recherche. We learned that Norwich City Council had closed a bicycle rack. We learned that Guinea Pig Awareness Week had changed its date to avoid a clash with the elegiac observances, although, ironically, the mockery generated by this announcement marked the first recorded awareness of Guinea Pig Awareness Week. We learned that a well-loved amusement jetty in Southwold had shuttered, possibly submitting to... Peer Pressure. And we learned that perhaps no single entity exemplified the bewilderment of the moment quite as poignantly, if not necessarily deliberately, as centre parks, proprietors of holiday resorts for middle-class British or Irish people who cannot be bothered going overseas and who can blame them what with all the respect British and Irish airports have been showing in recent months. We learned in the first instance that Centre Parks planned to close entirely for 24 hours around this coming Monday's funeral, and we learned very shortly afterwards that this announcement had elicited a mildly riotous response from Centre Parks inmates who were not terrifically keen on interrupting their holidays. Let's have a clip evoking an amount of indignation. (sighs) 
We then learned that Centre Park's Crisis Management Division had hit upon the brilliant solution of allowing visitors to remain on the site but stay confined to their lodges, upon which we also learned that it is apparently too soon for the COVID-19 lockdown nostalgia trip. Let's have an even larger amount of indignation. We finally learned that Centre Parks had capitulated to the degree of allowing guests to roam the compound freely, but that nothing would actually be open. It remains unclear to us that any of this, and or the uncountable further such examples, was what she would have wanted. Indeed, during her seven-decade reign, we didn't learn much about what she wanted, which we realise was kind of the idea, but we can at least presume that she might have been quite pleased with the one cohort of Britain that did seem to have some idea how to behave. We learned, because we had the live coverage from Westminster Hall on in the background while we tapped this out, that there's something weirdly affecting about watching an endless queue of random citizenry shuffling silently, curiously and decorously past the unifying totem of their diverse tribe, the hush interrupted only by the clanking and stomping occasioned by the changing of the guard. A nation which has changed beyond recognition, finding something in communing with an institution which barely changed at all. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Next, we turn to Sweden, where the head of the country's moderate party, Ulf Christensen, has said he will form a new government after the Social Democrats were defeated at this weekend's general election. This won't be planned sailing. The election was not only a defeat for Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson's party, but has also been seen as a watershed moment in the country's political landscape, with anti-immigration Sweden Democrats making significant gains to become the country's second biggest party. This week we were joined by Emily Izoaho, Program Coordinator for Peace Mediation at ETH Zurich and Monaco 24 regular contributor on All Things Nordic. It's been bringing quite some time and um, the Sweden Democrats, of course, have made an impressive um, <clears throat> kind of uh, come to the politics since um, they first crossed the electoral threshold back in 2010 with only 5.1% of the uh, votes. And now um, they're at over 20%. So, of course, very, very impressive. Um, but one should keep in mind, however, that it is almost 80% of the Swedish electorate that did not vote for the um, Sweden Democrats. And in fact, even as we are often talking about this as a loss for the centre-left um, coalition, um, the incumbent Magdalena Andersson's party, Social Democrats, in fact, were one of the only three parties gaining um, their share of votes in these elections. So their share also went up by 2%. So it's a very mixed picture, if you will. Yeah, absolutely, Emily. And before we talk more about policy changes and some of these sort of social uh, elements, just on a pure political basis, what kind of challenge lies ahead in terms of forming a new government against this backdrop? Uh, Ulf Christensen has said, I'm ready to do all I can. Uh, will that be enough? 
It's going to be a long uh, road ahead uh, for him. Um, Ulf Kristersson, the leader of the moderates, is bound to break at least one of two taboos or long-standing pillars in Swedish politics. So it could be either um, that he indeed will cooperate with the Sweden Democrats, which is perhaps the likeliest option, even though there are a lot of policy concerns there. Um, the center-right bloc is not at all um, unified. And for instance, the liberals um, and the Sweden Democrats that are part of the same block very much do not see eye to eye. The other option um, perhaps from a Finnish and an other Nordic perspective would be indeed um, to break the block system in Sweden and mm-hmm. Magdalena Andersson in her concession speech actually left the door open to this. She said that she's willing um, to engage in negotiations uh, with the moderates um, if Kristersson um, so decides. But again this would be unprecedented um, in Swedish politics again to have the Social Democrats and the moderate party cooperate um, in a ruling coalition. Again, something that has been done elsewhere, including in Finland, uh, but not to this day um, in Sweden. Well, yeah, Emily, I wanted to ask you about that broader story across the the Nordics. It it is not just Sweden that is battling this sort of tilt towards the the, the right. I think it's quite striking. If you look at the rhetoric from uh, the parties who are making gains, you know, make Sweden safe again, clearly echoes of a, of another populist blowhard on the other side of the uh, Atlantic. But, you know, how concerned should we be about what this means for the whole region? I think we, again, it's a mixed answer. So one, we should definitely be concerned. We should pay attention to um, the government um, negotiations in Sweden, um, say in Finland, um, the Finns party, um, their sister party on, on that side of the Baltic Sea has been very much empowered uh, by the results um, in Sweden. And they're looking at the April 2023 elections in Finland and going to those elections um, feeling rather empowered, even though currently in the polls, they are the third biggest party Um, at around 16%. Um, percent. Um, so again, unlikely um, to have a same, a similar victory um, like their sister party in Sweden. At the same time, and I'm coming back to the block system and, and, and perhaps the trickling down or breakdown of the block system in Sweden, Magdalena Andersson and her predecessor have alluded to this, the need to a broad coalitions to come to the fore in Sweden and we've seen this again uh, in other Nordic countries where there's been cooperation in a way to keep some of the more populist and extreme voices out of government and and ruling positions Uh, but again we've seen them uh, influence the public opinion and policy be it in Denmark um, with the Dansk Folkeparti or the Finns party um, in Finland so we'll need to pay close attention to the coalition negotiations in Sweden. Well, yeah, and I guess a sort of corollary question to that. Do you, do you think there is any threat to the idea of, uh, you know, how progressive the, the Nordic countries are, not just politically, uh, socially, they seem so socially coherent. Do, does, you know, the kind of headlines that we've seen in Sweden about gang violence and anti-immigration sentiments, and then how that then manifests at the ballot box, do, do you think it's too early to talk about that sort of destabilizing or, or challenging the received view of progressive politics? politics in the region. Um, so again, uh, a mixed uh, response. So uh, on the one hand, um, 
there is some consensus still, even in Sweden, say, on uh, some of the core pillars of the welfare state. And in fact, the Sweden Democrats have a lot more in common there uh, when it comes to economic policy, some of the social benefits that were put in place and raised during the COVID pandemic um, with the left-leaning bloc rather than their own uh, center-right bloc. Um, so some of those core elements in terms of what make the Nordic countries the way they are in terms of the education system absolutely will remain. Um, but on the value side, um, and uh, which will have implications also on the educational system, that's where um, there's more and more fragmentation. And I would argue the more extreme voices have become uh, louder and, and the centrist voices, uh, which are still the majority in all Nordic countries, perhaps are lost in the mix of, of these very loud uh, voices, both from the extreme left and extreme right. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator. And now, monarchies can only last for as long as their citizens believe in that. Andrew Muller examines what happens when the public doesn't have a choice. The 19th century Danish fairy tale composer Hans Christian Andersen knew what he was doing when he cast royalty at the heart of his most famous parable. The emperor's new clothes pursues to its most absurd conclusion the collective willful delusion that always surrounds royalty, and indeed makes royalty possible. Playing along with the idea that a clearly naked man is in fact splendidly upholstered in regal finery is not really, as Anderson suggested, any more or less weird than choosing to pretend that some randomly selected mortal has been ordained by God to rule over the rest of us. This is not, to be clear, to suggest that there is no case to be made for constitutional monarchy, at least. Even the most adamantine Republican should find chewy food for thought in the UN's Human Development Index, in which 12 of the top 20 places are occupied by constitutional monarchies, and Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index, according to which 11 of the world's least bent 20 countries are ditto. Just because a notion is inherently preposterous does not necessarily mean that there isn't something to it. Crowns should be worn lightly, however. Monarchies work best when they operate as an institution into which their subjects can buy, as and when or if they feel like it. Instructing people to adore their king rarely works out for either king or people, which prompts the question of why some countries insist on doing exactly that. At which point, we should probably reveal that this explainer isn't going quite where you think it might be. We've all known just one queen. She's, she's the person we've always looked up to. 
Are the United Kingdom's government and media institutions getting a bit carried away this week? Well, probably, but you can't really blame them too much. Queen Elizabeth II was a constitutionally, culturally and diplomatically significant figure and was a fixture in the global imagination longer than most people have been alive. Are the people of the United Kingdom and wider Commonwealth united in abject grief? Not really, but nobody has ever seized the imagination of readers or listeners with the headline, most people carry on more or less as normal, despite whatever it is. Uh, okay. Okay. okay, fair enough, but let's move yeah. on quickly. I'll give you that, yeah. I guess. Yes. The key is that the British citizen subject has a choice. Well, up to a point, and we'll come back to that. But we were reminded this week of all weeks that there are still those old-school monarchies which demand obeisance, or else. A record jail term has been handed down for insulting the Thai monarchy. A former civil servant has been sentenced to 87 years in prison for sharing audio clips that violate Les Majeste law. At which we turn to the news from Thailand. Thailand has long maintained severe strictures against Les Majeste, which is a fancy pants French phrase for calling the king a fink. Article 112 of Thailand's criminal code threatens up to 15 years in one of Thailand's infamously inhospitable huskaos for anyone who, quote, defames, insults or threatens the king, the queen, the heir apparent or the regent. This week, a 25-year-old activist, Jataporn Sayuang, got two years for attending a demonstration wearing a pink dress, which, the court decided, looked suspiciously like an outfit favoured by Queen Suthida. Sayoeng's accurate, if arguably ingenuous, defence that it was a pretty standard-issue pink silk dress failed to impress the judges. Thailand really doesn't muck about with this stuff. Even during the reign of the genuinely popular King Bumibol Adulyadej, who died in 2016 after 70 years on the throne, at least one of his subjects ended up in the dock on charges of disparaging the royal dog. And since Bumibol was succeeded by his somewhat more opinion-splitting son, Vajira Longkorn, prosecutions have been brought under Article 1124, among other infractions, describing a princess's dress as ugly or disputing the veracity of reports of a 16th-century elephant battle involving the then-reigning king, Narasuan the Great. Did it take place? Certainly, the crown prince of Burma died, according to the Burmese chronicle. He was shot by the Resun. According to the Thai Chronicle, the Kampins was dead by elephant combat. This may all sound daft, not least because it is, but there is maybe a sort of brute logic to Les Majest laws in that they reinforce the idea that a monarch is due special treatment because they are special, and they deter the asking of a question which is simply impossible to answer sensibly in this context, i.e. who does this person think they are anyway. In other words, if we want to move ahead to become a normal democratic society, this law has to be abolished. Not all monarchies do this, of course. The constitutional monarchies of Europe, for example, mostly seem to have grasped that getting roughed up in the newspapers or kvetched about online is a smallish price to pay for a palace, a golden carriage and all the self-awarded medals you can stand up in. Although as recently as last year, the Catalan rapper Pablo Hassel got nine months for, in part, insulting the Spanish crown. 
But even more or less consensual arrangements have their limits. In the United Kingdom, in this admittedly unusual week, Prince Andrew was jeered in Edinburgh by a bystander who clearly interpreted ungenerously Andrew's recent gift of 12 million quid to a woman he'd never even met. The heckler has been charged with breaching the peace. That same offence must be answered to by a man apprehended in Aberdeen in the vicinity of the route of the hearse bearing the royal coffin, carrying a quantity of eggs. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And this week, we kicked off a new season of The Big Interview. This week, we heard from Monaco's Sophie Grove, who sat down with Edward Anningful, a trailblazer in the fashion industry who currently serves as editor-in-chief of British Vogue. His new book, A Visible Man, traces his remarkable journey that's taken him from a military base in Ghana to one of the most powerful positions in fashion. Sophie began by asking Edward why he decided to write his memoir now. I mean, there is something to be said for turning 50. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm always sort of trying to look forward, always about forward motion. But in my 50th year, I mean, I got married. We've been together for 20 years. And I started looking back at my life. And then I also saw that a lot of young people sort of see the end result. They see people like, like me, like you, and they don't see the journey. So I just felt that it was important to let them know that the journey was as much about my failures as well as my successes. I'm gonna, I want to go back to the very beginning of this beautiful memoir. You were born in Ghana, in Takaredi. Your father, Major Crosby Enifil, was a military man who, who moved about quite a bit, but the family was there living in a military enclosure. Tell me about that period, your childhood. Was this a happy time? All I remember sort of all these beautiful bungalows and just running from house to house and in Takaradi and being with my siblings. When you live on a military base, it's very sort of very family oriented, so from house to house. Then we moved from Takaradi to Accra, which is the capital, to another military base called Burma Camp. Burma Camp was opposite the sea. And there was sort of a little hill with these sticks on. And, and we realized that, you know, that's where they sort of executed people. But when you're a child, everything, you normalize everything. So it'd be like on Sundays, we're like, oh my God, it's firing squad day. But essentially, people would be dragged out and shot. It was a very surreal life growing up in Ghana, but on a military base. You know, and then eventually we moved to the town of Tema and things were a little more normal. And the book is dedicated to Grace, your yes. mother, who was a very unusual military spouse in a way. She <laughs> had a very successful fashion business, 40 seamstresses underneath her. You know, she sounds like a woman with a lot of character, a lot of style, and you assisted her as a young boy, even attending fittings in the presidential palace. Tell me about her and tell me about those formative memories. I mean, I always say my, mo my mother made me who I am today. Very young age, I'd watch her sewing. I'd watch her make all these incredible clothes, all these incredible women come in. People always talk about sort of diversity and inclusivity, but I grew up with cousins and aunts and my mother's friends, all different shapes and sizes. My idea of beauty came from my mother. It wasn't a specific Eurocentric style, but it was anybody could be beautiful. And she really showed me 
the most incredible things you could do with fashion, how women would feel so beautiful in just one dress, the right dress. She also showed me if women didn't feel comfortable, what that was also like. She would take me everywhere. I was really her little, I was probably her favorite. (laughs) But I learned about beauty from my mother. Well, tell me about the move to London because you talk about the executions and the change of power that happened after Nkrumah came to power in in Ghana. Um, Lots of coups and eventually uh, the family and, and their allegiances came you know, really under threat. And your dad left for London and the family followed him shortly after. Tell me about leaving Ghana, how you felt at that moment. There we were running around the streets of um, Tema and then we hear there's a coup, you know, Rawlings had come into power. An uncle of ours was executed and my dad was gone from one day to the next. And we didn't really know how serious it was until we came home one day and my mother was like, all right, you're all going to London. And we thought it was an adventure. But it was, it was so crazy when we landed in London. I mean, it was, it was like Disneyland in a way. You know, I've never seen buildings like this before. I never, the weather was so cold. But, you know, I come, I come from, a, you know, we came from a country that was so hot all year round. And... The most incredible thing was that everybody was white. We came from, we just come from a country where the majority of people were black. But it was like, you know, a Disney ride. I mean, we all crammed into two bedrooms, but it didn't matter. Because in Ghana, we all, you know, shared rooms anyway. And you talk about going to Tesco, loading <laughs> up on Lilt, but also that feeling a bit like the Willy Wonka chocolate factory, this sense of wonder. This is exactly what I said to my friend. It was like Willy Wonka. Just, I'd never seen a supermarket before. And all those biscuits and lilt, which we were so obsessed with, and tango. And it was just like, you wanted everything. Fill up the cars. We weren't rich, so you know you couldn't afford much. But it was so incredible. Just, I remember the idea of being in the UK at that time was like magic. It was magical on one hand. And tell me about some of your breaks. I mean, you talk about... You know, your work, for instance, with Calvin Klein and, you know, these two years of consulting and working with some of the greatest stylists and models we now consider to be supermodels. But yeah. back then <laughs> they were really up and coming people like Naomi. Tell me what you learned during those years. I learned that you could say so much about fashion through images. I learned that fashion had the power to, you know, to really affect change. And then watching my little friends, like Kate Moss, I met when I met at the casting and I was 16 and she was 14 and just watch her grow into this incredible supermodel. And then I'm meeting Naomi sort of in the early 90s, you know, she started to do well. We were the same generation. You know, we were all navigating sort of really grown up spaces. And the experience that Calvin Klein really taught me that, you know, what we were doing in London at the time, which they called grunge, had really caught the world's eye. In the past, you've said that fashion is a mirror. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, fashion's a mirror, and just, you know, it mirrors society. And even in lockdown, I thought, my God, what, do, what can we do to reflect the times we were in? And when they said 60-year-olds had to stay at home, we put Judy Dench on the cover, who was 85 years old. You know, we put the activist on the cover when George Floyd was murdered. And then I remember I'd look outside my window and see this essential workers out every day 
sort of literally putting their lives on the line and I put three of them on the cover. So fashion really, for me, works when it reflects our times or the times we're in. You're listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. For Toast Stories, a rather fun one. Sally Howard describes the ups and downs of one of Europe's long-standing amusement parks, Parc Asterix. It's 10 a.m. at Parc Asterix to the north of Paris and amid a torrent of squeals from nearby ancient Egypt-themed roller coaster Osiris, French families queue at Le Cosier de Epidemes, a water ride themed for a hapless Venetian merchant. He's a regular feature in the much-loved 1960s French-Belgian comic series for which this park is themed, René Goskin's Asterix the Gaul. In French, epidemis is a pun on corn cob, the traded commodity, as well as testicles, as in having balls. But in English translations, he's economic crisis, a comic harbinger of mishaps in trade. With 2.3 million visitors a year and a brand new on-site hotel, a gloriously campy bolt hole designed to resemble the locks of Lutetia or the Roman Empire era Paris. Park Asterix is, for its part, doing a brisk trade, including in replica pickaxes, yoldy-worldy slushes, and winged hats as worn by the pugnacious titular Gaul. Yet the park is a relative minnow compared to its near-neighbour Disneyland Paris, which sees 15 million annual visitors for Mickey and Donald and state-of-the-art rides including the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and Buzz Lightyear Laser Blast. Guy Vassal, the new Park Asterix Director General, is a Disney man. He's been brought in to give this 33-year-old French institution a bit of its competitors' pizzazz. So there will be new mega roller coasters in coming years, including two TARTUS. This 2023 launch will be the fastest roller coaster in France at 110 kilometers an hour, with 23 negative G-force experiences per ride. It's what people seem to want, Vassel, suave and deeply tanned, tells me when we meet next to Pegas Express, the 2017 launch current star attraction amongst the park's coasters. This plunges its way through a series of rapid twists and turns to a final brake run, disgorging hundreds of ashen-faced riders an hour. For all of its drive to become bigger and better, in short, to Americanize. Park Asterix is also quietly Gallic. The park is a key local recruiter and offers decent job and pay conditions to the 3,000 seasonal employees who dress up in Obelix costumes, Asterix's sumo-like muscular sidekick, or vend giant candy flosses or serve endless banquets in Roman togas. The park is also busy rewilding its eight hectares. It's part of Natura 2000, a network of European nature reserves that are breeding and resting sites for rare and threatened species, including red squirrels and garter snakes. And in 2021, the park also announced it would close its dolphin and sea lion aquaria for animal welfare reasons. In the literary culture wars, Park Asterix treads more cautiously. 
There's a fierce debate brewing in the US over whether to redraw some of the 20th century comics' dated renderings, such as large-lipped black slaves in Asterix the Gladiator, with French publisher Hachette pushing back, noting that these comics, they say, are a product of mid-20th century social mores and should be seen as such. These more challenging depictions, including coquettish Native American women that feature in Asterix in America, are politically absent from the theme park estate. While packs of teens queue for the biggest rides, families with little kids prefer the park's less follicle-raising offerings, such as a chance for a cuddle with Asterix and Obelix, a magician druid getafix, or a madcap show, heavy on slapstick, that sees tone-deaf bard Cacophonix disport with a flock of ducks, two friendly ferrets, and that quadruped edible much loved by Obelix, a snuffling wild boar. In a mocked-up Roman amphitheatre, 500 parents, children and teenagers impatiently wait Gauls versus Romans that match. It's a show that pits those mocked hegemons of the ancient world. The Romans, after all, are always slow and overfed in Asterix's chauvinistic sagas against the plucky Gauls in a series of challenges. These include a lively hip-hop dance-off, an aerial acrobatic show, and most weirdly, perhaps, a Segway race. My son and I share a bench with Louis and Bruce, a Parisian gay couple who are here with their seven-year-old son, Luca. What do they think of the proposed modernisation of Park Asterix to compete with its more brazen neighbour, Disneyland? I don't think you need bigger and bigger roller coasters to have a thrilling experience, Bruce a 45-year-old fashion designer muses. The crowd claps wildly. We just come here to enjoy the silliness, he says. And, you know, drink cider from a plastic animal horn, Louis adds with a smile. Buy two Tartus! The crowd erupts in cheers. The Gauls have vanquished their indolent foes and, like this most French of theme parks, the Gauls and Romans will live to fight another day. We stay in France, where the latest edition of Amazon Objet has just wrapped. The International Trade Fair takes place twice a year with a focus on interiors and furniture. We meet Ismail Tazi, co-founder and CEO of Train. A lot of effort has been put in order to show the, what's new in the design world here at the fair. And also a lot of effort has been put in order to link the fair to what's happening in Paris. And I think that's, uh, th that's a really good move. On our side, we're selected to be at uh, Galerie Signature here at Maison et Objet. And, um, and every, every selected uh, gallery or designer has actually a, 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 a space in, in Paris. Uh, and is on the itinerary of Paris Design Week. And I think building um, bridges between the fair here at Villepinte and Paris is, is important, and that's what Maison Objet is trying to do. So let's start with a bit of an introduction to your business. You're based in Paris, but you're sourcing uh, design from all around the world, right? Uh, all around the Mediterranean. So yes, uh, uh, Tram Paris is a new design brand. We launched, we did our press launch in January 2020. Uh, and we celebrate the Mediterranean culture through encounters. So every collection starts with a trip. And every trip we take three new designers to meet with local crafts or take inspiration from 
something, some place locally in the Mediterranean. And based on that, we actually conceive new pieces and new collections. So the first trip was to Morocco, Fez Meknes region. Inspired by a historical anecdote, King Louis XIV, actually, daughter, was asked by uh, King Moulay Ismail in uh, Meknes. And we were thinking, like, what would have been the Mediterranean if that alliance happened? So that was the first trip. Then the second trip was in, by Calabria in Italy, uh, where in, um, in 2016, as you know, you had these waves of immigrants come in and the mayor of Riace took a stance that was pro-immigrants and some immigrants also were involved in the ceramics there. And there was a beautiful story where we went to Calabria to discover this uh, unknown place to Italian themselves and, 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 and bring um, our um, design perspective. And the last collection, the third one, we went to Alhambra in Andalusia where we draw inspiration from the mathematics, the algorithm, the architecture of Alhambra in order to create an encounter between new technologies and contemporary designers. So we, we made a collection that is 3D printed in clay and hand glazed with the Won Min Park, Korean designer Won Min Park, Arthur Mamoumani, parametric architect, and Amandine David, who is a designer at the crossroads between digital craftsmanship and traditional craftsmanship. How do you use the opportunity here at Maison Objet and then also, like you were saying before, the link to Paris and Paris Design Week to tell that story to say, you know, someone that's maybe flown in from the States who's not aware of your brand? Maison Objet is really great for us because whoever you meet is something that is someone that is qualified. He's either an interior designer, a buyer, press, an agent, and we miss that because I said earlier that we, we were launched in January 2020, which was 15 days before the pandemic. So for us, it was a, a bit frustrating, but as you know, some great things happened during these downturns and, and, and we kept focusing, we kept uh, working and releasing new collections. And for us, this time at Maison Objet is our, actually after two years, it's our first opportunity to be in a fair within almost normal conditions and meet these uh, uh, industry professionals. So it's really, really great to be here. And we also opened a, a shop in Le Marais, the uh, 17 Rue de Poitou, where we did a beautiful installation uh, with the um, Berlin-based studio Marie-Ruby Lennox. It's a floral installation. So for us, create that conversation between our shop and Maison Objet is very important. And it also adds to our credibility when we meet professionals either in Paris or at Villepinte. And do you think it's actually an interesting time to be new in the industry because there has been a lot of disruption during the pandemic. At the same time, people have begun really thinking about the investments they make in their home and the the realization that they want to be surrounded by quality, which you guys obviously do. What's that experience been like, I guess, being a newcomer to the industry and how have you seen it change over the last few years? For us at Tram, the pandemic was an amazing opportunity to think about the product design of the future and the future of craftsmanship. And that's why we did this collection that is 3D printed in clay, natural clay and hand glazed. So for us, it's eco-conception, it um, uses 70% less uh, material, also integrates this concept of decentralized production where you could work with technology-enabled production facilities around the world in order to make your product locally. So to us, parametric design creates globally, but produce locally. So that was one thing that we did during the pandemic. And then also for the release of this collection at Institut du Monde Arabe uh, in February, what we used uh, with the Space Caviar uh, studio based in, um, in Milan, who did the scenography, we used bricks. 
the beauty is that the scenography was amazing. We, we took 15 tons of bricks to the ninth floor of Institut du Monde Arabe, did an amazing scenography. Then, after the event, we took the bricks back to Bricoman, here uh, not far actually from Maison et Objet. So there was no waste. And also, it's financially very efficient for us as a small brand. So I think, yes, it's an amazing time to be in the design world, uh, especially if you're looking at the future and what is the design of the future. You talk about, I guess, new technology, decentralizing production, moving into different parts of the world via 3D printing. All of those concepts, to me, they don't necessarily scream craft, but for you, they do, right? So can you take us through that process of modernizing is probably not the right word, but bringing craft into a position where it can be, I guess, more freely distributed, it can be experienced by more people, but it still has... I guess the hand, maybe not handmade because it's machine made, but it has the artisan's touch, right? How do you kind of explain that? 3D printing and parametric design is not against traditional craftsmanship, but rather industrial production. So that's, that's one thing. And the second thing is about digital craftsmanship, as we call it, is about iteration as well. It's a test and fail and test and fail until you get to the final product. So it's craftsmanship using new technologies mm. the machine doesn't do everything I know in people's imagination they think that you press a button and there you go you have, you have a product, that's not right I usually give this um, analogy like I grew up in Morocco and uh, you know in the 80s you had a wheel a wheeler who does the ceramics and he would spin the wheel with his foot so it's manual and then in the 2000s we, we got these electric uh, wheels to Morocco and then he would have a pedal and still, it's traditional craftsmanship. Well, I think from 2020, you have a 3D printing machine and you have a, the craftsman is behind the machine and iterating, making sure that you have a beautiful product. For us, for this collection, yes, we wanted to have this hand touch. So we hand glazed, which gave every piece a unique aspect. And that was actually uh, very widely uh, praised. And we will do more in, uh, in the future. And as we like to end the curator with a nice recipe, and this time by one of Estonia's best chefs, Peter Bihal. My name is Peter Bihal, and I am a head chef of the Fotografiska Tallinn. And today we're gonna do the Bakvit Semolina pudding with uh, Woodruff uh, milk. It's uh, one of my favorite uh, childhood uh, tastes, and really popular in the uh, school canteens. I think in every home doing different way because uh, you just take the semolina, boil it together with some uh, nice uh, berry juice, for example, black currant, red currant, blackberries, because now it's really like a season of the, of the berries in Estonia. And you cool it down, the semolina pudding, together with the juice a little bit, and then you whisk it. And uh, usually you just uh, eat that together with a nice cold milk. And that's the thing. It's very, very popular for the, especially for the summertime. On summertime, you can add fresh berries on the top as well. And if you eat it, you have to follow the the system. How you gonna eat? You have to take all the layers: the semolina pudding, fresh berries, and the milk on the same time, and the big spoon of the the semolina pudding and omps. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of the Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thanks for listening.